70s disaster season boards us back onto a ship for a British thriller full of recognisable faces led by Richard Harris as a bomb disposal expert. Let's find out if his team can save the passengers as we discuss Juggernaut. Welcome everyone to the Collector's Cut. I am Peter and joining me as always on this voyage is David. Shut up, Jeff. I'm not Jeff. Welcome, I'm Peter. Just to reiterate that, in case anyone got yeah. confused. Uh, this is a movie podcast. We work through franchises and themes and seasons of movies, and we're currently on 70s disaster season. Uh, we did Turin Inferno last week. We did a batch of movies last year. Today, we hit the sea once again with Juggernaut, a British-made disaster movie from 1974. So we'll get into all that. We'll start spoiler-free, of course, as we always do. Just before we do get into it, I'll just say that you can hit the like button if you are enjoying the show. It helps more people find the, the channel and find the videos. And of course, you can support everything over at patreon.com slash TV and get some bonus shows over there. I'll tell you more about them at the end. But what is Juggernaut? It's not uh, an X-Man. Uh, I'm not going to lie. That it made it really hard for me to find this movie every once in a while. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, like, because so just to reveal here, the, the the premise of this movie is that you know this transatlantic ship is carrying you know 1,200 people. It's not 1,200 passengers. It's 1,200 passengers plus crew included, uh, right. but 1,200 people on board, and they're traveling from the UK to the US. And a terrorist has planted seven explosive barrels onto the boat and he's doing a whole ransom demand type thing. And mm. I think getting into the movie, I assumed the boat was going to be called the Juggernaut. But then at the start of the movie, you yeah. see it's the Britannia something something. And you're like, okay, okay. And then it turns out that the the terrorist is using the alias Juggernaut. He's like, he phones up someone and says, I'm the Juggernaut. And I'm not going to lie, the first thing that popped out of my head was, <clears throat> I'm the Juggernaut, bitch! It, it, yeah it, it was the it's, first it's, thing it's offset with such a like he has a very soft-spoken british voice oh, but was, then the moment he says yeah. it it's just immediately into that harsh australian australian he sounded australian was he not australian Nah, he was english oh okay Fair <laughs> i was like do you think vinnie jones is australian is that what you're no, i thought at? he was putting on something for the character no, he's just got a soft-spoken English accent, which was a very... Uh, I, I was surprised at how soft-spoken he was, because I, I think... I don't know if it's just uh, expectations of what someone who's a villain sounds like, but hmm. he was very... Now, it just so happens that I've put seven explosive barrels on your boat, and I don't want to harm anyone, so I ask for the measly sum of £500,000, and no one shall be harmed. Please and thank you for listening to my call. I'm like, he's very yeah, polite. It sounded like halfway through that he was just going to say, like, is that all right? Are you okay with that? I don't want to cause any inconvenience here. If that's good for you, then I'll happily accept my money. Uh, Would you like some tea? I could put on a kettle. <laughs> and even later on, uh, Richard Harris, who's the kind of a star of the movie, he hmm. even says, oh, he's not even that greedy. 500 grand's actually quite quite a low amount for uh, for this type yeah. of thing, even in the 70s. For a, so For a massive ocean liner like this, yeah, you could easily get more. Yeah, he's actually being like, he wants what he feels he's owed, right? And mm -hmm. no more. That's it. Yep. He's, he's not being too much. Anyway, so that's the basic premise. 
Uh, we do have a, a big cast list. We've got a few big yes. names here that we can we can talk about. Although I was surprised at the start of the movie that most of them aren't on the boat. <laughs> I was, yeah. I kept going like, "Oh, where's all the characters? Where's all the names I know?" And I'm like, "Oh, there's Ian Holm from Alien, uh, pre-Alien as well." Uh, mm-hmm. That, and I'm like, "Oh, he's not on the boat." Oh, there's Anthony yeah. Hopkins, uh, very, very, very pre-Hannibal Lecter. This is like a good twenty years before that. Oh, he's not mm-hmm. on the boat. Um, Richard Harris, he's not on the boat. Is anyone on the boat? Is there anyone on the actual boat? <laughs> yes, we have those two kids and <laughs> like three other people. Well, to be fair, Doctor Zhivago is the captain, and he's on the boat, mm. so the, he has a relative big name. But still, uh, that's the 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 overall idea of it but yeah it's very much about getting the the bomb experts onto the boat so they can try and get to it while the police in london are trying to apprehend the 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 terrorist that's what the movie is not it's not like a long-term thing they've got less than 24 hours to get all of this handled either diffusing or catching the guy and telling them how to diffuse or paying them yeah we're paying them (laughs) which a lot of people are actually saying that's the best choice here just pay them yeah be done with it so except of course the government stooge yes yes so that's the basic setup of the movie um i had never heard of this one until we went looking for 70s mm-hmm. disasters okay we're doing a second season of 70s disasters let's see what else is available uh well i actually found all these last year when i was doing the first season and mm-hmm. kind of didn't put this one in the first batch because we were doing poseidon adventure and even though it's not the same type of movie i thought oh we won't do the two boat movies at the same time yeah. we'll, uh, we'll split them up so interestingly richard harris of course was in cassandra crossing a couple of years after this which we did do last season mm-hmm. um so there's a little connective tissue there but otherwise this is very much uh a, a different film so we'll get into it yeah uh i'll just start off uh, as i usually do david mm. what did you think of the juggernaut bitch <laughs> um it's it's actually exactly what you just said there is that this is a very different film in that it doesn't feel like it follows the same formula that a lot of the disaster movies that we've done mm. followed where a lot of those movies are we establish this broad ensemble cast and we follow their different things of how they're overcoming these issues and how they're managing to survive through this but because this is a bomb threat movie None of the characters can really do anything. When we're introduced to this ensemble of, like, passengers on this ship and all these different characters back home, like, all of them are kind of just stuck waiting to see what Richard Harris does. They're just waiting for him, and he's the only one that we really have doing the sort of stepping through the process and seeing how to fix it they're the lives that are there to be saved so they're there to add the drama to what what the stakes Mm -hmm. are but they're not the ones actively doing things in the plot we're just made to feel a concern for them where the one or two characters who are actually trying to solve the problems are are the ones Mm -hmm. doing it it's interesting because i was thinking about this is that this is actually a lot closer to the movie that started the 70s disaster wave, which was Airport, because that's a bomb threat movie. Mm. That's what kind of kick-started this entire subgenre in the 70s. And right. we've not done that. And the reason why we're not doing it this season is because it's, whole, it's got its own franchise. And effectively, Disaster 70s Season 3, when that comes around, will just be the Airport franchise. Yeah, pretty much. So, like, that's been saved for its own thing. This is actually harking back a lot more to that. But yeah, it does kind of stick out to us because what we've been doing is kind of what disaster movies became more of, which is the disaster mm. happens early on and it's the characters try to survive it. This is more, 
the potential disasters trying to be averted uh, throughout mm-hmm. the movie. And of course, there's some action, there's some tension oh, yeah. and stuff. Um, like there's seven bombs on this boat. You don't think they're gonna blow up one of them? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I I suspected one or two might go, uh, mm-hmm. even if they ultimately saved the day by the end. It's uh, I think it's, it's I think it's a decent movie. I think it's a a mm-hmm. very it's a fine movie to have on. It's a very easy enough watch. I did find it a little dry in places. Yeah, I think this. I mean, how long was it in total? It was like an hour forty-five, hour fifty. Yeah, somewhere in there. there. Yeah. It. I think there was a, probably twenty minutes that could have been cut mm. in total, just to really trim up the plot a bit. But by the time you hit the third act, second half of the second act, the tensions ratcheted up enough that I was enjoying it the whole way through. It was all first half stuff. Yeah, once you get to just like the pure bomb defusal and like the the methods mm. they're using, that gets entertaining, and you can kind of get into that. Uh, mm. Same with the sort of the manhunt going on back in the UKs to break up that plot a little bit. It's equally got some entertainment value. Uh, yep. I think the introductory stuff is mostly fine, but it does kind of feel like we spend some time setting up characters that... I, I thought there was going to be more to do with some of them. I thought they were going to have mm-hmm. more, you know, direct jeopardy in the back half. Like, you know, we introduced two kids, and there is one moment with one of the kids that's kind of a big deal, but... God, that kid. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, that's actually quite early on. It's like before the halfway point. So mm. I was kind of waiting for these factors to come back in the second half, and they never really do. They're just kind of, yeah, like you say, waiting around for the, everything else to, to play out. So Yeah, they, they go on this whole long thing of like, oh, there's this politician on the boat, and he's able to see through, like, the lies that the crew is telling once they find the explosives. And he keeps, like, coming up. He keeps talking to the crew. He's talking to his wife. But, like... At no point does he interact with the main plot. At no point no. does he have anything to do with the bomb. Yeah, honestly, and that's like well, seven different characters. One of the weirdest things about this movie, and it's almost refreshing in a way, but at the same time, it doesn't create the same amount of conflict that maybe would make the, the story more interesting. Is that mm-hmm. when it gets to the point where the, the the passengers are told what the what the crisis is, they're actually. They're, they they don't riot. Yeah. They don't they, they don't cause trouble. They're 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 very depressed about it. They're scared, but they crack so like it's a very British sense of humor where they all just kind of yeah. crack some jokes about oh well if we're all going to die I guess we'll just have a party There's, or something. R- right after that scene where the announcement happens and everyone's just kind of like sitting there and like someone even cracks some dry jokes. It cuts to a scene with two women who we've been established before this point, and one of them's like, "Well, that's a great cure for seasickness, blind terror." I'm like, <laughs> "Are are you scared? I genuinely can't tell." <laughs> I've actually got some thoughts on the setup of that character. I'll do it in spoilers though, just because it's more specifics. Um, yeah, yeah, I think uh, overall it's still a decent watch though for what it is. It's, it's a very yeah. easy time. It's it's there's nothing. Uh, to to sort of make it an unpleasant watch, but I think I think you just need to go into it with the mindset less of a towering inferno, less of a Poseidon adventure, and more of like a speed sort of plot. Hmm. The again trying to prevent the thing from happening and dealing with the issues as they come up, rather than it's already happened and how do we just survive it? Yeah, uh, but that, it definitely there. Are, I think it's just it just happens that we've not done a disaster movie like this at this point. Well. Mm-hmm. I guess Cassandra Crossing was kind of like that to a point, but that had like multiple things going on. Yeah, that, that gave it even more to do in the, the middle before it got to the ultimate thing that we're and trying to prevent. Still, it still had the entire ensemble interacting yes. with the threat. Absolutely, yeah. So. 
which is what this one's kind of missing. Uh, mm-hmm. is it, it does feel like it is just Richard Harris. And even like other prominent characters who are in positions of power, like the captain, like he talks mm-hmm. to Richard Harris about what's going on, but he's never really directly making that many decisions. Like effectively, once we're in the situation, his position of captain is basically just to open the doors for the people who actually know what they're doing. He he doesn't really yeah. have the power to make any decisions at that point because he because sh- he can't really. Like no. you know, he's not a bomb disposal man. He he doesn't know what he's doing. And then there's there's the same sort of thing where the people back on dry land, yeah, they're doing the whole thing of trying to track down the bomb maker, but the first like chunk of it is basically just making the decision of do we pay or do we send someone in to try to defuse it? And then once they decide Richard Harris is the man, they're kind of just left sitting listening on the radio to whatever Richard Harris says. Yeah. So Yeah. So uh that that about sums it up but it's it's certainly not bad though like i, I did not have a bad time watching it and it's it's uh like i, I guess middle tier I, guess, I i mean i don't know if we've established kind of the upper lower middle tiers of the 70s disaster genre yet city on right. fire is definitely towards the bottom of what we've done yeah. so far uh with you know but we, we've done sadly i think we've done most of the best ones already yeah i was gonna say i, I over on our uh, ratings score sheet i've just limited only to 70s disaster and city on fire is by far the only one that dips down to the lower tier yeah everything else was like seven states yeah so uh we might be in we might be in for some stinkers over the course of this season this is not oh a stinker boy. though this, this i think this is no, just kind of this is perfectly a fine movie it's just it's just not as good as the the, the better examples of the genre mm-hmm. so uh yeah i got a couple of little time period things that i'll 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 mention just before we get into spoilers um okay. at one point uh i just started chuckling to myself uh because the two kids are playing an arcade machine and it's 1974 yes. so there's really only one arcade machine it probably could have been and that is pong they're playing yep. pong and i sort of laughed and went this isn't like because someone, if someone was making something now and they were setting their movie in the mid-70s and said, oh, we want to show that it's the mid-70s, this is what mm-hmm. they'd put in the scene to show it's the mid-70s. So there was something really funny to me about that, this actually <laughs> being cut and edge when they put this in their movie and goes, oh, this is the hot new thing. The kids yep. love this at the arcade. Nothing's going to outdate this. <laughs> so, I do love, though, that the, that entire scene is kind of wrapped up with this idea that the mom's trying to pull the kids away from it. And they're like, no, mom, I can't pause. No, stop. And that's just <laughs> something that's stayed eternal. Uh, it's really funny, though, because there's no progress in Pong. <laughs> there's the score up top, 6-2. Yeah, but surely you just start a new game next time when you come back. I mean, you say that, but if you were playing actual ping pong, would you be like, all right, well, I'm winning by four points. We can leave and start over again. And we just won't have a definitive winner. Yeah, but it's not like when you play Pong, you're like, oh, we're going to do like the same rules as Ping Pong, where this is how many sets we have, and this is when the game ends. And Well, I don't know specifically about that version, but I know some versions of Pong did have like a first to 11 oh, really? or whatever oh, okay. like, limit stop. So Yeah, obviously I'm familiar with Pong, but I don't know if I've ever actually played real Pong. I was not allowed new video game systems growing up, so you I had have, one from the seventies. <laughs> I, I one, someone in my family had an Atari, and okay. I remember playing Pong. Okay, all right, well, uh, that's that. Uh, other bit of technology that stuck out to me—I don't think I've ever seen this before—is that Ian Holm in his house has a printer, but this oh, printer yeah. was like a fountain pen on like an arm that was just like scribbling, and, and it was in cursive. And I went, "This is." 
This is evil. What is this machine? <laughs> I mean, it, the best way I could describe it is it's kind of like a fax machine. But yes, it's imitating handwriting. It's literally a pen on paper. Yeah. It feels like the most proto-printer to ever exist. It feels like very early technology, but it's for some reason they're trying to emulate cursive, which I just think is like, the whole point of printed text is that it's easy to read. Okay? That's the whole point of it. Well, that's the thing is, I'm not sure, because we also see there is an actual printing machine. There is something with, like, block text at, sure, uh, yeah. throughout this thing. So I think this might be something where, like, it was a handwritten note that's scanned in or something, and it actually is, like, just drawing mm. out the thing that it was. Or maybe some, it's one of those things where, like, you know, in surgeries where they'll have uh, someone controlling a robot arm and every movement they make is imitated by the robot one-to-one. Maybe like this is a machine where they have a pen on one side and the movements are translated across. I mean, that's, I don't know. That seems, yeah, but the way you're describing that sounds a bit advanced for 1974. When True. it's not like this is a science fiction movie and this is meant to be tech, this meant to look futuristic. This is clearly just something that existed when they made the movie and they put it in. Here we go. I, I literally found someone talking about the movie Juggernaut and talking <gasps> about this thing here. It's called an XY plotter. It was really a program on the desktop mini computer that controlled the motion of the pen to do the actual printing. One of the labs even have a plotter doing cursive writing. So yeah, it was just the way they had a printer back then it, where well, they were like, yeah, you just load in a pen and you never run out of ink. It's awful. I'm glad it died. <laughs> uh, now we have much better printers that don't cost $700 every time you want to refill the ink. Oh, wait. Honestly, you're better off going to the library and paying your, your five cents a page or whatever it is. That's true. You're just yeah. much better doing that. <laughs> but I got a laser printer, so oh, there you I'm go. all fancy like that. Oh, you could buy a laser printer and just put in your tonar every so often to... Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, those were the two pieces of technology that really stuck out to me as, as I was watching this. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that <laughs> that's kind of the one thing is that I'm sure that bomb technology has actually evolved significantly. But they do make a point in this movie when they do take a look at the bomb to say, like, no, this is advanced stuff already. This isn't, like, amateur hour. This is some high-tech stuff going on. Yeah, whoever, whoever did this noisy stuff, yeah. Right. But, like, it seems like the same sort of thing that I've seen in movies in bombs for, like, the past 30 years. It doesn't seem like it has updated all that much, you know? Yeah. It's always, here's a bunch of wires and they're going to a bunch of triggers and you just have to cut them in the right order. I suppose the two points I'd make there is one, that this came before most of the movies you're probably talking about yeah. having seen. And two mm. is that the actual explosive parts are probably are the same and haven't evolved. The only thing that's maybe changed yeah. is the sort of type of device you might use to trigger them. So now you may mm. have like a smartphone that's like hooked up to it or something. That'll... Yeah, that's true. But... Like the cell phone receival where you get a text and then it goes off or something. Yeah. But the actual explosive part, I don't think, has evolved that much. It's just it's the chemistry is still the chemistry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how far explosives have come since the hydrogen bomb, if Athens went further than that, but... Eh. I mean, I doubt... It's the thing of there's a bunch of different varieties. This guy, like, he was... I think it was, like, Amosol or something like that. Mm. And you know what? Realizing this now... I think the algorithm's going to hate us if we stay on this oh, sure, yeah, topic for too long. Let's so. that, move off. Let's move off of that. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of blue wire, red wire, 
white mm-hmm. wire all that stuff which i actually didn't really think about this as i was watching it but I was, because when i went to imdb to get the page up and the trailer autoplayed and i paused it in the first like frame because i don't want it mm-hmm. playing um the movie starts with that old ship thing where every all the passengers throwing the streamers off the off oh, the yeah. boat, and i'm just looking at this freeze frame and it's all red white and blue streamers and i wonder if that was an intentional little like yeah visual reference to all the the wires of the bombs later it could be i mean i definitely see it i'm looking at the same frame now yeah yeah it's very similar yeah maybe it's an accident but uh, given the fact that it's the same colors except there was also a green wire it feels Mm -hmm. like you know yeah Yeah. i mean they had to make a choice of what color streamers to do so unless they just got it off sale because that's the same colors as the union jack or whatever I, i can't imagine that it wasn't a non choice yeah I mean, that'll be the reason why, but to be fair, the yeah. red, white, and blue is the same color as a lot of big flags. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I was just saying, because this was filmed in Britain, yeah. I assumed that it was getting yeah. all of its props and such from there. I think what's interesting about this, because it's the 70s, you can tell that there's actually scenes that are shot on the deck of a ship. Like, they, 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 mm. they, they weren't faking it necessarily uh, as much as a modern movie would just fake it, which is right. fun. Um, so... Yeah, I guess we'll get into the into the spoilers. So you've been warned for Juggernaut. Uh, beware. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things that was getting me at the start of the movie is I actually thought it was setting up Anthony Hopkins as the villain because yeah, there's a moment at the start where we see like this this mom and two kids, right? This is the two kids we were talking about before, and they're on the deck and they're throwing the streamers, and there's like this uh, the jovial guy who works on the boat who he 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 calls himself the jester obviously that's not literally what his job title is but he's going around trying to cheer everyone up he's actually going around and handing these streamers out to the passengers at the start yeah he he strikes me as like the master of ceremonies sort of thing where yeah. it's hey we have a bunch of huge events on this boat and i'm in charge of them and i'm here to make sure you have fun yeah I, and honestly maybe i'm just getting a grumpy old man now but all i could think about during this scene was this feels like you're making a lot of mess for someone to clean up that isn't accomplishing much and sure enough we get we get a shot later of some guys with brooms sweeping the yeah the decks and or the the uh the docks i should say and mm. i'm like yeah like what was the point of all these all you're doing is making a mess this is this is this is silly i, I mean for me it's just my mind immediately went back to yeah this was the 70s we were still a little bit on the edge of like does the environment really matter <laughs> Yeah, plus, you know, we've seen the state of their video games. They have to make entertainment somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, so we're interested in this woman and her two kids. And she looks kind of worried about something, right? Mm. It turns out later that she's just seasick, right? She gets seasick. That's basically yeah. it. But at the time, because it cut from her and she's waving down to her husband, and that's where we see Anthony Hopkins, and he looks like he's got a serious look in his face and he gets into a car all ominous i was like oh he's the villain he's planted this and his wife knows Mm -hmm. something about it and that's why she's scared and all of that is completely wrong anthony hopkins is the policeman who's going to be investigating all this stuff uh and he's worried later because his wife and kids are on this boat understandably but yeah so i i had a slightly different reading but that was only because of a much later line oh sure it caused me to look back and that is basically the wife saying how she was being sent to some family over in America, which is where this liner's going to. And it was just basically to relax and clear your head. But the way she was describing it, it sounded like marital problems. Mm. It sounded like this idea of, you know, maybe him being a policeman is too stressful or something. But regardless, she's taking a break from him I mean, as I, well I, as 
that's that could still be true. I mean, that could be like why the, the mood's kind of weird between them when they're waving goodbye, mm. and it's like right. That's why I was. Yeah. That's what I was saying. That original mood, why it felt like it was so weird between them. Yeah, I agree. It felt like it was a villain at the start, but once we got established that he was the policeman, I was like, oh, okay. So there is a different reason it feels yeah. weird between them. Yeah, but it's they said, and maybe it's because I'm used to Anthony Hopkins playing villains. I don't know, but like I just oh, yeah. I, I got that vibe, and I was like, oh, so he's the bad guy then. So. Mm-hmm. To my surprise, when it's some other dude that phones up Ian Holm, who owns the ship and owns the shipping uh, line, mm-hmm. I think you refer to it, uh, and he gets the rant, and he's he's having a very casual morning, like talking to his kids, and he's just sort of like, yeah, that's that, yeah, I'm 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 him, yeah, what is it? What are you talking about? And then this quiet voice is like, "There's seven explosives on your ship." the britannia and, like, and his face just slowly drops he's like uh, oh i need to take this seriously what's this <laughs> yeah well that's my morning ruined great yeah uh and to be fair he's never he never comes across as like an evil businessman because he's quite quickly just like, to the police he's oh, like yeah yeah i'll just pay it uh, you know we've got contingencies you know got insurance and the government guy tries to bully him by saying oh we can have some subsidies for you if you don't give in to this and don't pay him well, uh, apparently the subsidy was already given, and that's uh, the whole reason. He's like, he's like saying, hey, "Look, we sunk two million dollars into your ship. We kind of have a say in this. Obviously, you're allowed to make the final call, but we're just going to say that it is the government's policy to not negotiate with terrorists." Which, for, for the record, every time this comes up, I understand why that is the policy because if if someone gets away with it, it just encourages more people to try it. So mm-hmm. I get why it's just a, a strict no tolerance. You just don't pay them. Like I, I get it, but yeah. this isn't the government that's being blackmailed. It's a, a private businessman, effectively. Mm-hmm. So uh, he seemingly is he's he's wants to pay, but he's talked out of it. And Anthony Hopkins and Co are going to go look for all the explosive arsonists and experts Mm -hmm. and everyone who could be on the suspect list. So they spend half the movie doing that. Yes. Uh, Real quick, before we move on to that, can I just ask you a question as someone living in the UK? Mm -hmm. There is a sentence in here where he says, I have like 7,000 pounds of whatever chemical and it will explode unless you give me 500,000 pounds of money. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you ever get confused between whether someone's talking about weight or money? <laughs> no, no. Uh, context is usually very obvious as to which yeah. one's which. Um, it probably helps that pounds doesn't really get used for most weighing terms here. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, the UK is a, it's very convoluted when it comes to what metrics it uses for all these things. Because, right. f- for example... Will refer to milk and pints, uh, even though officially liquids are you know liters, milliliters, you know metric system, right? Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't use gallons for anything. Um, when it comes to the, officially, we're supposed to judge distances in kilometers, right? Again, metric. However, if you're talking about a car, you're still talking about miles per hour. No one knows. Right. No one has a sense of what x number of kilometers per hour is if you're talking distance you still bring up miles even though technically we're supposed to have moved away from that everything's mm-hmm. all mixed um like we're not really supposed to use feet and inches for anything but if you talk about someone's height if someone says to me i'm 1.4 meters tall i'd have i don't know what yeah. that is to to think about <laughs> but if you say six feet i can picture six feet it's all yeah. mixed it's all convoluted everything so, some things have moved on to metrics some things aren't 
it's the, the only thing that throws me for a loop anytime i hear someone across the pond talking specifically it's usually about weight loss they'll say like oh i've lost 1.4 stone and i'm like you're speaking french what in the hell is a stone <laughs> well a stone's actually still pounds it's just uh uh it's what 13 pounds is a stone something like that's so random. That's so out there. Is, I'll stick to my 5,280 feet per well, mile. Stone, that makes sense. Stone is to pounds what uh, feet are to inches. Okay. I guess. It's just a way to bundle them. Just the bigger thing. Yeah, all right, that's enough. all it is. It's not, it's not a different system. It's just the the bigger value of the same system. It's just system. a value. It's, it's a unit of measurement that is not used yes. commonly elsewhere. Yes. Uh, and, if, and then, of course, if, if people talk about, like, a football pitch, they'll talk about yards. No one uses mm-hmm. yards for anything else. See, so you say that, but, like, there's so many things over here that, like, we will refuse to use meters for anything, and <laughs> yards is, like, that exact right size where I, it is super close. I have no idea what a yard does in terms of, like, I can't visualize it. It's three feet. That's about a meter, though. That's almost exactly That's a meter. That's what I'm saying. That's what, we will do anything to not use a meter. Uh, it's very convoluted. It's, it's hard mm. to explain why certain things use certain metrics and other things don't. But it's not all metric. I think mainland Europe has went more full metric, where everything's just yeah. metric. Here, everything is mixed. It's really yeah. just... You just get used to which one's which, and that's just how you go by. Yeah, fair. So, I mean, to be fair, when you buy milk, it does say, you know, two point something liters on it, but yeah. you still refer to it in pints because the sizes they come in is one pint, two pint, four pint, six oh, pints. Yeah. I mean, that's same in America. We've got, I've got a Coke can right here. It's 12 fluid ounces and then parentheses, 355 milliliters. Oh yeah. So ounces doesn't get used here at all. I've never seen ounces listed on anything. That's fair. So I don't want ounces. Uh, I think it's 16 ounces to a cup. See, that's just stupid. That's, yeah. <laughs> it is. 16 ounces to a cup. Cups are different sizes. What, what, there's no strict definition of what a cup is. Oh, there is a strict definition over here. I thought that was one because it's, it's, how many is it? I think it's like four cups to a pint or a quart, something like that. You're just using made-up words now. <laughs> I might be. I'm not <laughs> good at culinary just, stuff. It's just made-up nonsense now. Anyway, anyway. Yes. Uh, the, t- the term that uh, didn't throw me off, because I understand it, obviously, but I-, I don't know if this is something that Americans use. I don't think I've ever heard Americans say it. But if mm. someone says they grass someone in, do you understand that? No. What's the context? Well, later on, it's when they're talking to uh, one of the, the bombers that are in prison. And he says, I'm no grass, meaning that he's not a snitch. So if you grass someone in, you're ratting on them. Yeah, no, never heard yeah. of that. that. I don't think it's an American thing. It stuck out to me because I'm like, oh yeah, you don't hear that in movies. That's such a British term. Uh, yeah. For someone to say they're a grass or they're not a grass. Uh, but that's what it means. Yeah, I'm just looking up the slang of it. It does look like it's all British. Yeah. Well, well you know, you, you've learned something today. Uh, I have. Congratulations. <laughs> Do, it, what, Honestly, the, the weirdest thing is that there's a lot of terms where I'm not sure if they're British or they're just Scottish, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's not until I hear them in a, a an English-made movie where I'm like, oh, English people say that too. Yeah. I, and I don't realize until later. And then sometimes I'll say something to Connor, expecting him to know what I'm saying, and he'll just have this blank look in his face, like, what are you talking about? 
So that's how I feel about all like the Gen Z and Gen Alpha slang coming around. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if you're just making stuff up or if this is real slang that's managed to make its way outwards. Anyway, so uh, on the boat, uh, we're introduced to the captain who's having a bit of a fling with one of the passengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara, I think her name is. Uh, so we get introduced to him, the first officer. Uh, there's a uh, what would the the the, the job title be here? Uh, bus boy. <laughs> oh, the like waiter guy. Yeah, the waiter. The one who fakes the accent. Yeah. Uh, porter, maybe. Yeah, porter. I guess. I don't uh, know. He's just he's general staff slash crew. Yeah. He's putting on an accent so that he sounds like he's foreign to everyone. But then when he talks mm. to someone else who works on the the ship, he just immediately goes into his Liverpool uh, yeah. accent. So, you know, it sets up a, a few characters that you might remember enough. There's the American politician mm. that comes up, like you said. Uh, but they don't go into them too deeply. Uh, there is a moment where there's some crew working below decks and one of the guys is like, what's this barrel doing here? And he just kind of writes it off as he assumes that, oh, when the shipyard was working on the ship, they left a bunch of their junk on here. Because apparently that's yeah. just common, like, at, at least in this time period. Yeah, it makes sense. So he's just, They even say later on that it's they make sure that nobody's stealing anything. They check that everything coming off the boat is something that's supposed to come off, but they don't really care what goes on the boat. Yeah, I'm sure that's changed uh, over the decades as, oh, yeah. you know, terrorist attacks and things have, have been a bit more thing the release of this movie yeah yeah probably it probably inspired some new safety checks and security yeah i suspect so it sets all that stuff up but the big thing is of course is that this is this is phoned in it's a very quick montage of like the captain looking at one of these barrels you, you don't really get i was expecting like a scene where the captain like has to take the phone call and hears for the first time there's bombs on your ship and mm-hmm. we don't really get that. We just kind of get, like, it plays out over a montage where he's looking at one of them as you hear it being described. Uh, yeah, there's there's an image of a fax coming through that basically says, seven bombs, please find them, thank you. <laughs> uh, this is important, top priority, everything else yep. is, uh, whatever. Cancel dance night, we gotta find the bombs. I never, was there a reason, because they mentioned that a couple of parts of the ship were off limits because it was being renovated, and you could, you could see some like, workmen with, like, paint brushes mm. and stuff. And I, I can never really... I thought that would come into play more at some point, and I don't think it ever really did. Yeah, I don't think it really played a part in the plot. It was basically that this is the first time the ship is sailing, more or less. At least that's the gist I got to it. And it was still, like, basically large swaths of it were functional, but they weren't finished being, mm. like, decorated and built and such like that. So they were roped off from the general public. Was it its first time sailing, or was it its, like, first time since it's been, like, redone? I wasn't sure on that. Yeah, I'm not sure on that either. The yeah. one thing that we get is, and it's very much prominent over the first like montage of this movie before we even get the bomb threat, is it sails for a few days, but the gyroscopes are brand new, or at least they say they're brand new, and essentially they're non-functioning, and yeah. so everyone on board is getting seasick the whole time. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, they're, 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 you see they're, they're trying to serve food and the trays are all sliding and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, maybe maybe that's why they were doing the streamers. Maybe that's only like a first a first launch yeah. thing. You don't do that every time you're leaving because that would be just tiring. <laughs> I mean, yes, but I feel like I've also seen cruise ships go off, and maybe it's different if it's a cruise ship compared to like just a general ocean liner. But yeah, yeah, it, they 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 make a big celebration because it's a big deal for the people on board, whether it's the staff or not. These people who are doing these once in a lifetime trips are like, yeah, throw the streamers, have fun. <laughs> 
I'm just thinking of the poor guy has to sweep up all the streams. They showed him as Anthony Hopkins was driving away. Yeah. There was one dude with a with a broom just sweeping away. I'm like, oh, poor Scruffy. <laughs> He's looking over at the water going, you know, if I jump in now, I would be dead in three minutes. <laughs> Nobody's going to notice me underneath all the streamers. <laughs> so... Right at this point, where we because we don't we, this is the whole thing. We go a good twenty minutes, maybe more, without seeing mm-hmm. Richard Harris, and he's the first build. And I'm like, "Where's Richard Harris? Where, where are we getting to Richard Harris?" And it comes mm-hmm. to like a museum where there's like a bomb, and he's tinkering with it. But him and his like buddies, like first in command, played by uh, David Hemmings. This is Braddock uh, as his his buddy, and uh, mm-hmm. they're working together. And they're being so casual and just chit-chatting as he's defusing this bomb. And it's mm-hmm. just like a nothing. It really sets them up as, okay, they're really good at this. They, they, they're cool under pressure. And when it's actually done and it's defused, he just... Because he's been very careful the whole time. But as soon as, okay, that's it, definitely done. He just throws part of it away. Like, it's, like, yeah. like he's so careless at that point. Which just shows that he knows that it's safe now. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. that's what he's doing. And they're like, hey, there's a call came in. We have to go to a boat. <laughs> It's in the Atlantic yeah. Ocean. They're like, oh, let's get a drink first. How bad of a job could it possibly be? Yeah. So the whole the whole big sort of set piece in the middle of the movie is them parachuting down from a plane uh, mm. to to the water to some some of the lifeboats that have went to pick them up. And uh, one of the because it's not just those two. There's like a whole team of like seven guys that get roped in that they don't work yep. with uh, regularly. But it's like, oh, this is a big job, so they're bringing in a lot of disposal experts. Yeah. So one of them actually dies on the way up to the ship, uh, and someone says, "On <laughs> you go." I, I just I that that whole sequence just annoyed me because <laughs> they got the you got seven guys parachuting out of this, but then they say, "Okay, well we're gonna send out like a little dinghy, a little lifeboat to go pick them up, and we're gonna have three guys from the boat along with them in order to get the lifeboat over there." Two of those guys die. From like the ship itself that were on the lifeboat, and one of them does his damnedest to die. He tries <laughs> his hardest, and these parachuting in guys have to basically try to save him, and it results in one of them dying as well. And that just pissed me off so much. The idea of like, did you check to see if your guys were, I don't know, able to swim before you put them in this lifeboat and sent them on their way? So here's the question I had though: Is that this 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 final person who one it's one of the, the disposal guys like falls when he's climbing up the ladder to get onto the ship, mm-hmm. and he falls into the water and like I think it's the American politician maybe who says, "Oh, there's a man overboard. Aren't you going to turn around?" And the the seaman goes, "It's not a car, sir. Like it, it takes like five miles to turn around. By the time we get back, mm-hmm. you'll be gone." And I'm like, "But you just picked them up with lifeboats. Why why don't you get a lifeboat and?" Because then up. the lifeboat wouldn't be able to keep up. <laughs> Silly. Now, honestly, that's the, uh, this is a huge part of the movie here is them describing that like they're sending the boat in circles, basically waiting for the plane to arrive. Oh yeah, because if they keep and, if they keep going out further, it's going to take longer for the plane to get to them. So yeah, it makes sense right. that they're going to try and stay in the same place. I'm all good with that. My main concern with it is they show that they can just turn off the engines. Why don't they just stop? Why are they going in circles specifically? Um. Okay, I am no sailor, but okay. can I p- hypothesize that it helps with keeping the ships more stable because there's a storm going on? Because that's another big point here is that... Oh, that's true. Uh, there's another big point here that there's a storm coming in, the gale force winds, and mm. that's why we can't just evacuate the ship. Like, 
And they eventually, obviously, at a certain point later, decide it's, they're going to have to risk it. But the captain mm-hmm. outright says, if we go on the lifeboats in this weather, half of them will not survive. Which right. may be better than all of them dying on the ship if we get to that, if it gets that bad. But mm-hmm. that's why we, that's not just the easy option right now. So maybe part of like fighting the storm is like if you just stay still, the storm's just going to like hit you from yeah, the side and yeah. knock you over. Okay, but I, I guess that makes sense. But it doesn't do a good job of the movie of saying like specific because that's the thing that tips off a lot of passengers is they notice that like the sun keeps on switching from the left side of the boat to the right side of the boat, and even though they're not telling them anything about the bombs, they're like clearly something's happening. We are not going in a straight line. What's happening here? We've got some naval experts on this boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, but that, that, you know, that's like the, the first half of the movie is very much all this set up. It's all this: how do we get in the bomb disposal guys onto the boat, and mm-hmm. from there, you know, Richard Harris is very jovial with the way he's like tackling the problem. He's like, okay, we've got the bombs here, 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 and here. You see them on the map or the blueprint of the the ship, and he's like, okay. This one here will cause the least damage if it goes off. So that's the one we tamper with first. That's the one that we practice on and see if we can figure things out. And they've yep. got a whole plan here to like close off all the the doors and to use their big fancy machine to drill into it and see what they can find out, right? So they're, yep. they're basically expecting it to go off to, to learn something about it. Mm. However, <laughs> during this... The the boy of the two children has went wandering, mm-hmm. and the the guy who has been faking the accent, uh, the porter, he has to go looking for him. And would you believe it? The kid stumbles into the room just as the doors are coming down to like seal everything off, and the the porter ends up there with him. And this thing's drilling in front of them, and honestly, I was enjoying this in the moment because I thought, oh, this is good tension because now. Yeah, like because because they were basically they'd set it up so that if it goes off, it's no big deal, like it's contained. But now there's an innocent kid in there who's going to die if it goes off. And it's like, oh shit, yeah. it better not go off now. Uh, so I thought it was going to like play out with them not knowing. Uh, instead, there's a phone in this room, so the porter calls up to the the main deck and is like, "Hey, I'm in here. Like, open the doors, let us out." I, I love in that moment the boys like, "Hey, your voice changed. You got a weird voice now." and they, you know, they they go for a run but they, the the porter slips so the, the the boy survives but the thing does explode and mm-hmm. it takes out uh well the yep. other thing is that they specifically they open up all the doors yes. so it even though uh our guys were hidden behind a blast door and as they were trying to test out this bomb their doors all opened up and they realized like crap something's happening here we got a bail but it's too late for some of them and yeah, some of the bomb the diesel text die as well yeah uh, i think it's around here where one of the uh officers is assigned to replace the man who died because mm-hmm. he's an electrician so he's not a bomb disposal guy but if he's he knows electric stuff so at least he somebody could, says cut the blue wire yeah. he knows to cut the blue wire he at least I think at the very least, if if a, an actual expert is telling him to do something, he'll understand the terminology of what he's telling him to touch and tamper with and stuff. Right. So I, I get yeah. the logic, but it does add an extra layer of, oh, shit, like someone who's not actually doesn't know what they're doing is going to have to start tinkering yeah. with this. And the other thing here is that they they specifically try to do this setup and they explain how it works, where basically uh, Richard Harris is the lead. He decides what action to take on 
these bombs, but they these people are split off over multiple well, bombs, sometimes that, two, sometimes this, all. That, this comes after this initial... So the first bomb thing, they're all together, mm. and they're doing this test with this drill machine. After this, yeah, the setup is that... If I, at first, it's not even all of them. It's just two of them. It's just it's just Richard Harris goes to one, mm. and his, his best buddy, Charlie, goes to the other. And the idea is, is that Richard Harris will talk through what he's doing, and he'll do each thing one step at a time as they try and like take off the rivets on the, the, the side of the barrel and get into it and so on. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that Charlie will keep doing what he does just a little bit after. And then this is a really morbid thing, but the idea is, is that if Richard Harris blows up, then at least Charlie knows at least one thing not to do <laughs> because it right. set off the explosion. And then he takes over and then someone else will be second at another explosive. Um mm-hmm. So you've got a little bit of a wages of fear kind of like set piece here where yeah. he's working on one explosive, Charlie's working on the other, and they're talking through each other. The police and all that are all listening to this over the radio back in London. And it's you know, it's, it's quite tense. And it's like, okay, here's this wire, here's this little trick. Um, and of course, the, the two possibilities at this point for me was that the obvious thing is that Charlie's going to blow up because he's not the lead, <laughs> right? But, what? but the main character cares about him and that's going to be like a big like emotional hit. And mm. that's actually what ends up happening. But I, I also thought there was a small chance that if they leave it till late enough in the movie, they could do the shock death of the main character. And yeah. like Charlie may have to like finish it off right at the very end. But obviously mm. that depends on when it's coming. Here, Charlie is the one who, who blows up. And then Richard Harris just sort of slumps back and says, pay him. Like that, that's what he yeah. says. So it's like, oh, he's defeated unfortunately at this point in the movie uh they've tried to pay the bad guy and it's when all a bit tits up he, he basically yeah. he's paid like a third party like a guy to just go and pick up the money at the train station yeah well this he's got a whole complicated plan beforehand first off they try to trace the phone call and oh, he's right, managed yeah. to do the thing where he's got like two phones hooked up next to each other so he's unable to trace it from there um but then his entire plan is you go down to the basically lost baggage claim of this uh, train station or airport or whatever, and you tell them this specific baggage. Inside are going to be some other bags and a key for a locker. I don't think the locker even really even came up, but they say you're going to load up these bags and then you, I've got a third guy. He's going to come in, take the money. Don't follow him or else you'll never hear from me again. Don't try to take him out either. And then he's going to take the money and go. However, apparently the problem is, is that when this guy tries to get through baggage claim, he didn't realize that he would have to pay extra money because now the bags are weighed down with so much cash. So he just is forced to leave the bags where they are. And therefore the police come in and try to grab him, which tells Juggernaut up. They broke the rules. No more now. Yeah, not not defusing the goddamn thing. Yep. So it it does lead to maybe the most interesting character beats of the movie because Richard Harris is basically given up and he's getting drunk in the captain's quarters. And the mm-hmm. captain's like, You've got to go and, you know, defuse the bombs. And he's like, nah, just pay him. It's not even that much money. He's not even being greedy. Like, just do it. And the captain hires him or uh, hands him a, a fax that just says yeah, yeah, the investigations uh, went tits up. Uh, you have to defuse the bombs. And yep. he's just like, oh, well, I guess we're screwed then. And basically, he's he's at this lowest moment. 
And it feels like the captain's trying to convince him, hey, there's 1,200 people you need to save. And he's like, ah, 1,200 is nothing in the grand scheme of things. And it it just yeah. kind of feels like Richard Harris has to get through his like, mourning period. Because he, he basically he, he says some stupid things. He throws the bottle at the wall. And then he smiles and says, all right, break time's over and goes back to work. He's just working through his, you know, his, his feelings. He has his to get grief, through this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think that that line he says, though, of in the grand scheme of the universe, 1,200 lives is nothing. It's just an insp- in, why can't I say this word? A non-large, it's a very small uh, speck in terms of the universe. And... I think that that's a theme that keeps on coming up because earlier on when the government stooge is basically saying, hey, mm. don't pay them, it's not worth that. He says, well, you have to look at these things in the broad scheme of things. And Ian Holm flashes back with like, if you look at things broad enough, anything can be written off. Like Which, that's Yeah, and that actually ties in because we find out who this guy is, the who the juggernaut is, bitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is actually someone, it turns out, to because all right so the way we get to him right we actually see his face before this point we see him like on the phone talking to ian home but mm-hmm. the way we get to him is that richard harris as he's like he's doing things with a bomb he's looking into it blah blah yep. and something every man is now stationed at a yeah. bomb so they're all doing it sequentially so you know for, he goes first then the others all copy him until he potentially goes but he's he has an epiphany. He has this realization. That he's reminded of a bomb from the Blitz, right? So, which I guess, yeah, we're in the seventies. That these guys are old enough that they could have been in World yeah. War Two. It's a weird. I was gonna, main you thing. made the throwaway line there of like, oh, there's a lot of naval officers on this uh, boat. And I'm like, yeah, this is probably old people who went through World War Two. Yeah. They probably spent time on boats. Uh, very possibly, very possibly. But he remembers this particularly tricky bomb from back uh, in World War Two. And he, he orders the uh, people, he, he phones the captain says, get his like, paint thinner, like, right now. Mm. And you're like, Wait, what's he doing? And t- it turns out, he's like, oh no, this entrance is a decoy. There's actually another entrance that's hidden behind the paint. So he scrapes off the paint with the paint thinner, gets into this other entrance, and describes, oh, this was a place, this was a bomb that, we, that was in the Blitz. And obviously he's asked, okay, how did you defuse that? And he's like, we didn't. We ran. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it went it off. It blew up. Everything was on fire. I broke my leg. So the only person who could have built this is the person who built the original one, probably the German. And he's like, well, is that, did anyone else work on this with you? He's like, oh, yeah, this was my like commanding officer. This is the guy who taught me everything I knew. And would mm-hmm. you believe it? It's him that's the, the culprit. He's the juggernaut. He's using this design because he obviously he worked with it as well at the time. Yeah. And he stole it from, you know, whatever German built it in the first place. So what this ultimately turns out to be, it's actually very similar to Speed. It's funny you made that comparison because he's this guy who's like, I disposed bombs for decades for the government and all I got was a shitty pension. I didn't matter. And I think that ties into that theme of like being insignificant in the grand scheme of things is he just Mm -hmm. wanted what he felt he was owed because like he's, he's having a miserable retirement. He has a life that sucks and he put his life on the line day after day to save everyone and got nothing for it and it, it's you know obviously what he's doing is not good and he does definitely do a big unsympathetic thing right before the end but there is some sympathy there's at least some empathy to be had for his motivation and oh, yeah. it, it's really pointed out because uh when so, someone says to ian home like oh you know this is why you don't pay someone like that and he turns to the government mm-hmm. guy and says you're the one who makes people like that and walks out. Yeah. And it's, it was a very pointed thing that this was a problem that 
the attitude of the government created. It's the sort of thing where I appreciate that this theme is running throughout the movie. I just wish it was just a little... Just a little deeper than it is. It just feels yeah. a little thin for, for what it actually is. You you get it brought up by the government stooge twice, beginning and end, and then you've got the whole monologue in the middle by Richard Harris. But I think this is the sort of thing that, because you have this ensemble cast, you could make it something that like is explored in different ways. Like yeah. You've got a mayor, a politician. I'm sure he has big views on like how much does the individual matter compared to like the whole group that he represents. And then you've got a mother. You've got this woman who is theoretically cheating on her husband, I believe, with the captain. You've got a lot of different ways to view this viewpoint of how much should you care about an individual over another individual or the group over the single. But we don't get that. There's no real examination of it outside of this. Yeah, I completely agree. You could use all these other characters to reinforce these themes through their own different lenses, and it doesn't really do that. It does, like, that woman who's cheating on her husband with the captain, she gets a reasonable amount of screen time, as does the captain, and it Mm -hmm. paints who both of them are, but I don't really feel like either of them have an interesting character story, or, like, by the end of the movie... The only thing that really comes up is like you know the the the, the woman who's having the affair with the captain. She ends up dancing with uh, the jester guy at the party. Mm-hmm. She's like, hey, you know, it would really cheer me up if you dance with me. And so it's it's kind of sweet actually on its own. This little moment because uh, yeah. because everyone's miserable. It's the most miserable party ever because they all think they might be dead in the morning. So they're just kind of trying mm-hmm. to like keep their minds off of it by having this shitty party that was planned anyway. And yeah. when they're getting ready to evacuate towards the end because the bombs might go off he's she says hey in your professional opinion is there any upsides to like you know or any positive message you'd like to give me about the outlook on this and he kind of shrugs and goes well there's no icebergs and she looks up at the captain longingly and goes correction it's like oh the captain's a cold-hearted man who's refusing to be in love with her and i was like i don't care about your romance with the captain it's it's a footnote uh, if that in this movie yeah. it's it's so strange it feels like it should have been a much larger role in this movie because like you said they do get development but it's always after this bomb thing has already started so the captain is essentially the entire time just brushing off saying like look as much as i would love to hop in bed with you i have a little bit of a bigger thing going on right now you, so actually, you could just not do you know what it feels like we're talking about this like the, the, the value of a group of people in the grand scheme of things, and we're talking about him brushing her off. It feels like, if I didn't know how this movie was going to end now, I would say what we were saying would mean, to me, I would think it would be building up to a moment where she's in danger, and he has to choose to let her go to save everyone else. And it's the mm. idea of, like, that, that idea of the value of one person versus everyone coming up in and, and, yeah. plot. And, and I feel like that would justify the amount of screen time they both get, and it would feel like there's a payoff to it. As it is, it feels like they get... Effectively, they get character development, but it kind of is apropos of nothing. Yeah, the very last thing that is said between them is uh, she comes to visit him af- like by the time the second bomb with Charlie is already blown up, everything's going to hell, they're running out of time. And he basically says, like, yeah, they aren't going to be able to pay, and we don't know if we can defuse these bombs in time. And she says, well, you know, it's not about the 1200. All you need to care about is just one person. Am I that one person to you? And then it just ends the scene. He's brought away to do something else. And we never get back to that idea of what kind of relationship do they have after this point? 
Yeah, it never really pays off after that, and it certainly never ties into this theme that we're talking about, is the mm-hmm. the not caring about the insignificant quote-unquote amount of people. When the point right. is, you know, the point should obviously be that everyone does matter, and mm-hmm. maybe, yeah, one person might not be worth everyone else, but at least if they have agency in choosing to, like, make that sacrifice, that could be a big dramatic point you make, but it never really does that. Uh, well, yeah. At least with these characters. It kind of does it with Richard Harris, where Richard Harris talks about, yeah, I'm putting my life on the line. I'm choosing to go in and possibly blow myself mm. up to save everyone. Uh, but I mean, if you go back to the, not the beginning of the movie, but beginning of the second act, when the uh, one guy dies because he falls off the boat and they say, oh, yeah. you know, go back, go get him. And then they point out like, no, we can't. It's not we can't because it'll put everyone else's lives at risk. It's we can't because we're physically unable to. And that's not so much an idea of putting the many above the one. It's an idea of just, nah, he he's gone. We can't do anything. It's it's not examining the theme in the same way. Yeah, and that and if we did examine the theme with these different characters in these different ways, and it could have led to a big dramatic moment with the captain and his girlfriend and them having to make choices, it would mm-hmm. actually reinforce the idea that we can empathize somewhat with the villain when he says, "No, I've been overlooked because I was seen as insignificant." And I'm demanding that I be, you know, paid attention to. I'm demanding that I get yeah. my dues. That would actually ring even more true. So as a shame it doesn't do that with the other characters, I think. Yeah. So. But regardless of the themes being analyzed, the tension in this last act is top notch. That's good. It's yeah. Very like, good. He's, you know, they're all sweating as they're, as they're clipping wires and he's talking about everything. And back in London, they've got it drawn up in the on the board and they're kind of like crossing off the wires as he cuts them and keeping track of what it is i do like that when he's first back at the bomb after charlie's death he's looking Mm -hmm. at it and he figures out what happened he's like okay he went to cut this thing but he notices that there's a hidden little thin wire that's just there to trip if it it gets you know if it goes off it'll set everything Mm -hmm. off and he's like okay that's what he missed that's what he actually triggered when he was tinkering because richard harris obviously we said he was supposed to go first and then charlie followed Richard Harris said he was putting this little plastic strip between two things, but then the ship rolls and yeah. he was unable to finish it. But Charlie didn't know that. So he went ahead and put the plastic strip in anyway. Yeah. So he died instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it all comes boiling down to they've got the guy that they've found the juggernaut and they've got him in custody and they're saying, you're going to tell us how to defuse these. And he's like, no, <laughs> I'm not. <Yeah. laughs> um, and what's interesting is that uh, What's his face? Uh, Harris, Richard Harris wants to uh, talk to the juggernaut, right? Who at this point mm-hmm. has a real name, but he's just a juggernaut to us. So he's like, I want to talk to him. And he's like, okay, fine. And he lets him, and they let him talk to him over the comms. And he's like, look, I've got this all like stripped down to two wires. There's two wires left. There's a red and a blue. One's definitely going to detonate it and one probably won't. At this point, all that's going to happen is that if I get it wrong and I blow up, then the other four people with the other bombs are all going to know which one to cut. So mm-hmm. either way, this boat is not going now. The only life you are putting in danger by not telling me is mine, right? He doesn't say all this out loud, but that's the implication. He's like, it doesn't yeah. matter now. The boat's going to be and, fine. And it, it is worth noting that they established that this guy, the juggernaut, was essentially the mentor yeah. to Richard Harris's character. He's the one who taught him everything. So, look, the boat's not going to completely go either way, right? The other four will know what to do, so there's no harm in you just telling me now to save my life 
which wire it is and he's like mm-hmm. and there's, there's a big tense pause and all that and he's like, he eventually says cut the blue and richard harris gets his clippers and he, he goes to the blue and he pauses there and he get a close-up of the eyes he's thinking about it mm-hmm. and the then big he's, tense strings and then he switches to the blue cuts that or, sorry, the red. the red, sorry. Yeah. He switches to the red, cuts the red, and then as soon as he does it, he goes, oh, red, everyone, R-E-D, red! It's the red! Mm-hmm. And it cuts back to London, and all these cops look at look at uh, Juggernaut like, you son of a bitch, you evil okay. monster. <laughs> Can I just say something? Yes. That I think this character, yeah, great big moment, but let's just run with the idea that he was wrong and Blue was correct, Okay. The guy over the radio said, cut the blue wire. He repeated it. He said it twice. Richard Harris, without saying that, screw that, I'm cutting the red one instead. Cut the red wire. So if Richard Harris died in that moment, everyone's going to be like, well, don't cut the blue or don't cut the uh, blue wire. And then they all start cutting. You're right. The, uh, he should have one. said it. He should have said out loud that he was switching. You're absolutely right. If, yeah. if anything, he just gambled everyone on that boat <laughs> yep. by not telling them. You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, that said, the moment is still very good because it's it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's well directed. The performance mm-hmm. is great, and the realization that this, like, like I said, there was some empathy for why he felt he was mistreated by the system and the military mm-hmm. and the government before. But this was just a vindictive little thing to someone that he should care about because this is someone he trained. This was his protege back yep. in the day. So this is it's just spiteful. It's like, okay, you just earned your villain status like completely and Richard Harris just made the choice of his life. <laughs> and Yep. Yeah, so uh, the movie ends quite quickly after that. It's like he's up on the deck just walking around and the movie just, like, it goes to a big aerial shot of the ship and it, it literally just says mm-hmm. the end and the credits start playing. Pretty much. Um, I will throw out there. So we did have two explosions and they did put out mm-hmm. the idea that there are big holes in the side of this boat. Yes. We never see them. That is one thing practical effect wise that they hid. They did show the first explosion. We did have a good fireball for that. I think that the explosion for Charlie was actually just like a video effect. I think they just sent it to white and never actually showed a fireball. Yeah, which is effective. But, I think that works in the moment. Yeah, it, it worked fine. But if you really look at it after the fact, the first explosion is the only real like practical effect they had in terms of big action set piece, barring the whole leaping out of the airplane into the ocean, which obviously is its own set piece there. That's some big thing, yeah. It, yeah. It's got, it, it does feel like it has a fair budget because it has a real ship, it has a plane, it has mm-hmm. all these big locations and stuff. Uh, they do keep it quite light on the actual explosions themselves, as you say. I, mm-hmm. uh, I think it spends its money in wise places. I never felt too hindered by that. I suppose having a wide shot of where this hole in the ship is, assuming, because they intentionally pick ones, most of them are below sea level, but they intentionally, the first one is intentionally above, so it's not going to actually breach right. the hull. Uh, the second one presumably is, and maybe that's why you don't get a wide shot, because it's one thing to do a wide shot of the ship and show a hole in like a, a model, but it's another mm. thing, maybe when they were making this, they, maybe they didn't know how to do like an underwater shot of like a hole that's yeah. submerged. Maybe that was the issue. I, don't I know. mean, I wouldn't have a problem with not seeing the submerged one, but I do think not showing the first one doesn't really... Because I guess we did skip over this one thing. In order to prove that he's telling the truth, that he is able to do bombs, when he first places his threat, he actually has a little mini bomb that goes off on like the top deck. Oh, yeah, deck. yeah. Um, 
And that's able to show like, yeah, no, he has some destruction. But they also say that this is a tiny bomb. This is something that's barely even worth noting. I think to really sell the idea of how big of an like explosion this would be, they show just like what one barrel could do to the audience. They show the damage that is on the side of the boat, even mm. if it is just a miniature. I think that that would have done a great job Actually, for selling how deliberating six of them would be. You reminded me of that sort of little like test explosion to show like that he's mm-hmm. serious and that he's, he, he can do this. Uh, that may be the only reason why they have these parts of the ships that are being renovated and there's almost no one there because that's where this test explosion mm-hmm. is and the only person who gets injured is the workman who has happened to yeah. be there on a the ladder. Maybe that was like narratively the reason for it where it's like, oh, hey, this is just... He, he can have yeah. a little test that doesn't hurt anyone or almost no one because these parts of the ship are empty. Right. That's yeah, maybe. It, that's maybe that. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's... It, I think it's it's a solid enough time. It's a solid enough movie uh, without mm-hmm. ever being exceptional. Like you say, there's a lot more they could have done with the themes to really make them sing by having the other characters contribute to them as opposed to feeling more... I wouldn't quite say dead weight because, okay... There is at least a handful of characters that you understand enough that you you, you have like characters who you know that will die if the ship goes down. Mm-hmm. It's not just a bunch of red shirts. And that is worth having, absolutely. But it definitely felt like there could be more to do with some of them, especially the captain and, and his girlfriend. Those felt like they were getting so much screen time that ultimately amounted yeah. to very little. I would even say also uh, they went through the entire idea of anthony hopkins kids and while the kids are around and obviously the boy is involved with the Mm -hmm. uh first explosion i mean after that first explosion it doesn't really feel like it matters that anthony hopkins kids are on the boat it doesn't seem like it impacts his decisions the bigger problem for me with that actually i thought was uh so the scene where they're going around talking to other like people with criminal records that might fit Mm -hmm. a, a bomb maker they go to this guy that's in prison, right? And I mentioned this scene earlier briefly when because this is the guy that says he won't grass anyone. Like, he knows who it might be, but he's not going to tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, because Anthony Hopkins just is sitting there quietly, and I thought it was building up to when this guy says, no, nah, I know things, but I'm not going to tell you. I thought Anthony Hopkins was going to like go a little off book and get violent or like threatening because yeah. his kids are on the boat and he's got a personal stake in this. It's not just a typical interrogation. Yeah, the guy the guy specifically says, like, look, I know some stuff, but I don't care about anyone on that boat. None of them matter to me. And that's Anthony Hopkins' cues to be like, well, they matter to me, damn it. Yeah, whether it's just that he shows emotion or gets angry or gets threatening, I thought it was leading somewhere, but he just sits there quietly. It just looks mm-hmm. just looks uh, you know, pensive and like, oh, he's he's taking it all in. And I'm like, yeah. that's fine and all, but I feel like <laughs> you have personal stakes on that ship. And it feels like it never really matters other than just one line where, like, I think Ian Holmes says, oh, yeah, none of you care about anything on that ship. And I was like, my kids are on that ship. And then that's it. Yeah. It never comes up. I, I don't know. It's, it's also, I found this hilarious just because, A, that boy who got involved, like, he is involved in this explosion and he, like, risked the lives of multiple people because he was hungry. <laughs> and like it's the dumbest kid thing but i'm willing to accept that so long as after that fact the kid like understands how he messed up there and how much danger he was in 
But then the next time we see him, he's calling back to his father on the mainland. He's like, Daddy, I caused an explosion on a boat. <laughs> and it's like, all right, he doesn't get yeah, it. I he also, has no idea. I, I think it was weird that the, we never get the mum's reaction that he almost died. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, we hear her sort of ask the porter guy to go look for him because she can't find him. And she's like slightly worried, but not like aggressively so. And no. then after this all goes down, like it felt weird to me. To never have a moment where she's like, "Where's my son?" There was just an explosion. Did he? Was he? You know, near that was. Is he harmed? Or mm-hmm. her becoming aware that he was right next to it and only just got out with the skin of his teeth. Like these feel like yeah. things we should see the reaction for. And instead, the next time we see her, she's still just seasick. Like, oh, I'm still yeah. ill. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, I don't even remember seeing her after the explosion point. She just kind of disappears from the story from there on. No, there's one scene with her and the captain's girlfriend where they're sitting on the deck even though it's kind of shitty mm-hmm. weather, they're just sitting there with blankets and they're talking about like why she's going to the US. That comes after this scene. Oh, that was after? Okay, I thought that was before. Because they already Fair know enough. about the threat at this point because they're saying this get drunk because of the... Yeah, no, I, I knew they doom. knew about the threat, but there was an interstitial between knowing about the bombs and then them blowing up that first bomb. Uh, maybe maybe that there. was before that. I thought it was bef- after that, though. I could... I mean... Regardless, it's not enough to wrap. She doesn't do anything with her kid after yeah, that point. Yeah. The kid may as well be feral. The, the, the only thing I did like this though is after the announcement's been made, and everyone takes it like, you know, the, like the politician asks a question. The captain's very frank about like, oh yeah, the lifeboats aren't really an option because the weather's too bad and the the tide's too mm-hmm. rough. And he's like, okay, thanks for being candor. And he makes a little sort of dry joke, and a couple other dry jokes are made. The the sun pops a balloon off to the side and everyone right. jolts like ah, don't do that <laughs> sorry we're all jumpy here all right we're all scared of explosions don't, don't pop balloons yeah. uh yeah so i also i love how um there's this kind of background thing going on with the kid for the first act where they are trying to call other ships into the area mm. to collect the passengers in case something does go wrong and they are forced to, by maritime law, I guess, put up a flag that means there are explosives on board in order to make the other ships aware to keep their distance. And apparently the kid's got a little I spy book that's all about ship stuff. And just somewhere in that book, it's like, oh, that flag means there's explosives. <laughs> and when he goes down to the bomb later on, he was like, I was right. There were explosives. <sighs> I just feel like this kid has no, like, situational awareness at all. Do us all a favor, kid, and just sit next to the barrel. Yeah. <laughs> go go check out what your father's going to be doing in 25 years. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of more... It's a bit more middling than some of the other disaster movies we've done, but the tension mm. with the bomb diffusing itself is quite good. And it's an easy watch, uh, certainly yeah. as well. But uh, I mean, I think if you started this movie at the point where Richard Harris is defusing that first bomb, you wouldn't really be missing all that much. You just have to take on the fact of like, there's a bomb on a boat and that's Richard Harris is being called in. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think alternatively, I would probably, I'd cut most of before that, but the two things I would keep, I'd maybe have just a quick few shots of the boat leaving and I would go straight to Ian Holm getting the phone call, and then from there cut mm. straight to the introduction of Richard Harris. Yeah, it was a weird pacing bit there, where not only did it go through a day-night cycle to show people like on this boat, it went through like two or three day-night cycles before we actually managed to show like, oh no, here's Ian Holm reacting to this now that it is mm. properly out in the middle of the Atlantic. 
And I'm sure that was by design by the, the villain because he wanted them mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. Because if they were just like, you know, if they were near oh. the, the shore still, they'd just come back. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's one little other timing thing that I found weird, and maybe you could help me understand this more. Sure. Uh, they are on a straight shot. They make this straight shot over from the UK to, I guess, East Coast. We'll say New York, maybe Philly, something like that. Um, and they... Juggernaut specifically says that these bombs are rigged to go off at dawn on whatever day, Mm -hmm. as long as the ship keeps their current heading. Immediately after that is said, the ship stops its current heading. It starts going in circles and then eventually just slows down to a crawl. But when the bombs finally, like they're out of time, they've got like only an hour left. It still is dawn on that last day. So... I feel like the timing must have been off somewhere. Um, that's I mean, I'd have to go back and look at the scenes. I remember thinking it was daytime, and my logic at the, in the moment was that the reason why it's already quite bright is because they stopped moving, and they're still further east than they would have been had they mm. kept... So, they, so there's basically an hour time zone different than So they you think it wasn't dawn, it was more like midday in that last scene? Not midday, just, just an hour later, like an hour after dawn, okay. <laughs> if that that's makes fair. sense. Because uh, yeah, it didn't look that like because dawn's still quite dark, you know. It's still yeah. I guess it was more that they were intercutting between like the passengers on deck during the Richard Harris thing, and it was very clearly still dark at that point. So I assume that mm. the sun had just come up in that after shot, but it could have been like a few hours after. I think There's no reason to say otherwise. I think it's murky, but I think it, you know it would only be an hour off, give or take. You mm. know, in terms of like depending on where they are, because the. You know, because time zones typically move by one hour as you're going east to west, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think the I think when one of the, the London scenes they mentioned that there are two time zones away. I think they say that. So mm-hmm. so ten o'clock UK time is eight AM wherever they are on the boat, give yeah. or take. So I guess it's also just one thing in terms of how the movie communicates it. I feel like it would have been much easier to say like you have twenty three hours or you have twenty one hours. Instead, they keep on referencing this idea of like, oh, it's going to be a dawn on the boats because yeah. that's. I think Joe, it's funny. I think this is like a a cell phone, and that they they thought dawn was just going to be easier for the audience to like. Okay, we're building to dawn, and that sounds dramatic, but mm. it's actually more confusing for anyone who understands time zones. Uh, yeah. Whereas it would have made more sense to just say no, no, it's going to be. Honestly, the best thing to have said would have been 10 a.m. UK time. If they just said mm-hmm. that, then we'd have this constant... Like, it doesn't matter where the boat is. It just matters what time it is on the mainland. And that's... Right. You know, we'd understand it, that always. I'd also be all for it if at any given point they actually showed dawn coming. But it, like you said, <laughs> it goes from dark to uh, like two hours after sunrise. So... Yeah, yeah. It, Again, some of that's just the, the logistics of like when they were shooting, I guess, because they, they did mm. seem to be shooting at, at least outdoors, if not outdoors, on a boat somewhere in some water. Like, yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. But, yeah, uh, I mean, admit, admittedly, admittedly, they were probably in a big pool as opposed to actually in the ocean. I mean, my guess would probably be that they're just somewhere like in the English Channel. Like, probably far enough that you can't see the land and the way yeah. they're shooting the shots, but it's still open water. So, yeah, I guess we're ready to rate the movie then. That's been Juggernaut. David, what are you giving it? Um, As we said, I think the tension's good. I think that it kind of flops on its themes. It's shot well enough. I think that it does a great job of giving an idea of the 
like the the idea of this bomb and how threatening it is and i think that the uh biggest kind of issue they had was the ensemble cast but honestly because it's not so much a focus of the movie it kind of doesn't matter that they weren't focused on it's just a different thing that i'm used to seeing for these disaster films so all in all i'd say this one's probably like 6.5 i think it's just dropping underneath mm. the like really good label but it is still above average and i'd say the last act's entirely worth the price of admission as long as you did what i did and found it free on youtube <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would say that it's probably a six for me. It's you know it's above that midway line. I think it's like you say the the the, the fusion stuff in the back half is pretty solid. I think it obviously has a relatively strong cast as well, sort of guiding it. Uh, a lot of faces that we say, and most of them mm-hmm. are younger than we're used to seeing them because this is pre Alien yeah. for Ian Holmes. It's pre <laughs> all of Anthony Hopkins' big later works. I mean, even even stuff like uh, Elephant Man was still you know almost a decade away at this point. So. Yep. it's just it's a bit dry at times and i think the big problem that we talked about was some of the the focus and pacing and the fact that it hints at some themes that are interesting but doesn't really do enough with all the characters to actually add to those themes uh, is mm. one of the, probably the bigger things that I'm, I'm, I'm taking away from our conversation is like hey yeah that theme was there but they didn't do anything with all these other characters that and we can easily say how they could fit into that theme if they even just gave them a couple of scenes to actually address it but yeah here we are so uh <laughs> six out of ten from me on juggernaut but not a bad watch by any means definitely no, pleasant enough definitely not now the question is was it good enough to make the cut i i, I think this is a very good definition of an upper cut in the close yeah i'd agree with that i think it's straddling the line between making the cut and cutting it close but it just doesn't feel like I, it's something I would go out of my way to say, I want this on hand I think at any given it's time. It's sort of thing, if you're interested in seeing more of these types of movies, it's worth a watch, but it's not something I would definitively say, yes, it should be on the shelf. It's So mm-hmm. it's definitely in that, I think, cutting the close territory to me. Yep. That's exactly where I would have come down. So yep. It's so nice that there's only been like two or three over the course of our entire show that we have actually fought on the placement of. <laughs> I'm sure more, more fates will come. Don't worry about that. Yes. I'm sure more is on its way. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, Juggernaut. Next time on the show, we will be looking at something very different. We'll be going with some uh, mm. some insects or, or bees or whatever oh, it is. Boy. But we're going to be looking at The Swarm, which was a Patreon vote winner. So uh, mm-hmm. speaking of Patreon, I'll tell you more about the bonus shows you can get over at patreon.com slash TV. Me and David do two monthly shows. We have the Criterion Cut, where we review a Criterion Collection movie every month. And we also have Extra Reels, which we review uh, the opposite of that. <laughs> the, the worst of all time type caliber. So, yeah, Neil Breen's on the agenda this month, so. Yeah, well. If you know who Neil Breen is, then you'll know what that means. If you don't know who Neil Breen is, then oh boy, you've got an entire rabbit hole to descend into. Bring a friend. Do not go in alone. <laughs> it's the second Neil Breen movie we've done on Extra Reels, but you can get access to uh, those over on Patreon, as well as other bonus shows. There was a bonus episode for Streams After Midnight every month. Uh, check out all the TV content and everything else that we do at Male Fuzz Movies and Male Fuzz TV. Uh, but that is the show. So thank you very much for joining. We do appreciate it. Keep watching movies and... If you can get it, it's always nice to have...
diplomatic immunity. 